All right, if you have your Bibles with you, and I trust that you do, that you will turn to John chapter 8 with me, John chapter 8, and uh, let's look at a few passages there uh, this morning. And we want to continue on with the series that we started about who Jesus is. And uh, if you recall a little bit about that from last week, you know, this is this, this one this week will be the second of seven of the discourses that John records for us. Last Sunday, we looked at the one where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He declared himself to be that, and indeed, he is the bread of life. Because we know in John chapter 6 and verse 27, the Lord Jesus said, and it said of himself, that the Father had sealed him. And what that simply meant was is that he alone is authorized, was commissioned, if you will, as Christ, the sent one, the Messiah, to be able to impart life to those who would believe upon him. And, uh, and so he's been given that authorization. It's kind of like what it said in Matthew 28, right? All power has been given unto me in heaven and where? And in earth, right? All authority. Is what that word power there means. All authority has been given to him to establish those things. And so we know that the Lord Jesus, he can give life, life everlasting, but he also is so sufficient, more than sufficient, for everyday life, everyday life that we have. And as the bread of life, we are to feed upon that relationship that we have with him, that we may grow in grace. But here in John chapter 8 is the second of these discourses that the Lord is going to reveal about himself. And so I want you to see the passage in verse 12, John chapter 8, and look in verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. All right, let's pray one more time. Father... We thank you again for our precious Bible, Lord, the, the lives and, uh, Lord, all that it took, God, to uh, not, not just to have it, Lord, inspiration, but have preservation and those who published it and that provided, Lord, that we may have a copy of it today. And I pray you'll bless the reading of it, Lord, and the examination of it this morning as we look at another aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father... Uh, I need the Holy Spirit to help me to be able to teach and, Lord, to illuminate our hearts to that light that the Lord is speaking about. And I pray, Father, thy will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, in the last one, in John chapter 6, there was a context. You know, he'd been across there. He had fed the 5,000. There was a there was a lot going on in the miracles of those things. Well, there's a context to this passage as well. And I, I want you to notice something. Look with me. Look back. I, I, you were in 8, but I want you to go back one chapter. And I'm going to try to fill in the gap just a little bit. We're not going to spend long here, but briefly here. But look at John chapter 7. It says, after these things, after what things? After the feeding of the 5,000 and gathering up the fragments and dealing with those people. Remember those? They only came to see what they could get. They were only interested. Where's the next meal coming from? What other thing is he going to do? I mean, they were sort of entertainment oriented. They were certainly shallow and carnal. 
And yet we know the Lord still healed some of them that believed and the Lord still fed them, even the carnal ones. And that just shows you the goodness and mercy and compassion of our God. Amen. He's that way. God is good all the time and does that which is right. Well, in chapter 7, notice what it says in verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry. Why? Because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, remember we had said in John chapter 6, it said that the feast of Passover was nigh. But the Lord doesn't go up to that feast. He remains in Galilee and spends the rest of the springtime, if you will, and all of the summer. And now it's coming up on, look in verse 2 of chapter 7. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Tabernacles is the feast day that's well into the fall. So from the Passover, which is in March or April, depending upon when the calendar was, the lunar time for the Jewish festival for Passover, he walked in Jewry for the next probably five, maybe six months or so, and did not go to Jerusalem, but he remained in Galilee. And remember why some of those people, as I said, they, they were only interested because of the next meal, but there were some who kind of hung out so they could try to, if you will, find a reason to accuse him and find a reason where they might kill him. That's what the passage says. And uh, because the Jews sought to kill him. And, uh, and so we know that the context here. So, so in 6, the Passover feast was nigh, but now it's the Feast of Tabernacles. And he is misunderstood by many people, even his family. Notice what it says. Look in verse 3 of chapter 7. His brethren, therefore, said unto him, when it says brethren, he's not talking about those few men that were following him at the time, but he's actually talking about his family, my brethren, all right? Now, now his brethren, therefore, said unto him, depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, Show thyself to the world. Now look at verse 5. For neither did his brethren believe in him. And remember the Lord Jesus will say in the book of Matthew, what a prophet is not without honor except where? In his own country. All they remember, hey, isn't that Joseph's kid? Man, that's just the carpenter's boy. And they look around, man, that's just my brother. Or that's, that, you know, a sister might have said, well, that, that's just my, that, my half-brother, my older brother, you know, because Joseph was not his father. Amen. And, uh, and so, so we know that his family, you know, they, they weren't really behind him in what was taking place. At least not his siblings. His brethren were not. And, uh, and so he's misunderstood. And, and it says there by his, I mean, what did they misunderstood? Uh, understand, I should say, they misunderstood his motives because what they're describing here is that everybody's out to make a name for themselves. And that wasn't the Lord's uh, position at all. Everywhere he went, who did they glorify? They glorified God. He knew how to deflect the praise. You don't find them crying out, oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. They're not doing that. Everywhere he went, God the Father got the glory. And that's the way that it's supposed to be. The Holy Spirit that has come today, he magnifies Christ. But in that day, the Son was magnifying the Father and deflecting those things. And that's not the motive of the, of the average person. What? Hey, they're trying to make a name for themselves. 
And uh, what we want to do is we want to we want to name the name of Christ to know him personally and then to make him known not only here in Kerrville or Kerr County or in the nation, but around the world that many women, boys and girls might know that Jesus is the Christ and that God sent him to be the propitiation for our sins. And, uh, and so that's the goal here, all right? And so the context, they misunderstood his motives, his methods, his message, and they were all being scrutinized and, uh, and sentence was being passed upon him. Look in, look in chapter 7 and look at verse 24. Look what he says. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Now these Pharisees, they were getting upset. They didn't mind if on a Sabbath day, on the, and that being the eighth day of a child, when the child was born, on the eighth day they would circumcise that child. The Pharisees didn't mind the keeping of that law. In other words, that was a part of the symbolism of their relationship that they were going to have with God. But they were upset about the fact that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day, did more than take a little piece of flesh. He did something to restore that man and put him, if you will, in the right relationship with God. And they were upset about that. And so they weren't judging righteously. They were just judging by the appearance of things. And man, you know, we do that a lot today. I mean, we see something. Uh, I think on Wednesday night, we were all talking about, hey, things are seldom as they are first reported. And oftentimes, they are not as they first appear. You got to do a little more digging, a little more research. And so they were just judging superficially. You remember that when Samuel was out there? He was going to anoint the, the, uh, uh, a replacement for Saul. And man, he sees that first son come, you know, that belonged to Jesse. Oh, it's, uh, to himself, oh, this has got to be the guy. You know, and the Lord tells him, hey, he said, you, you look on the outward, but I basically, I look on the inward. And uh, so the Lord doesn't judge by appearance, but he judges righteously. And so they were, they were misconstruing his motives. They didn't like his methods and so forth. So that's the whole context here in chapter 7 as we go into chapter 8. And so now I want you to see something. There is also the conversation that's going to take place. Look in, look in chapter 8, look in verse 1. It says, Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Well, I want you to know something. You know, if you're looking for the Lord, the house of God is a good place where you can find him. Amen. And he frequented his father's house. He was there. And notice the passage says, and he came again. Remember when his parents were looking for him? They'd been up there, and he was about a 12-year-old boy. They were looking all around. Where did they find him? They found him in the temple. They found him at the house of God. And if you're looking for the Lord this morning, this is the place to find him. Amen. And, uh, and, so, and so look what happens. Not only did the common people that were there, he sat down and he taught them. They were listening. They were receiving these things. But look who else showed up. Look at verse 3. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. So this whole people, understand something about this conversation. This whole episode now is being done in a public place. They're in the temple. And here these scribes and Pharisees, scribes were nothing more than sort of like dictation people. They couldn't interpret the law. They just wrote things down. They recorded those things. 
the Pharisees in their day were the guardians of the truth and, uh, and very self-righteous in their spirit and attitude. And uh, we appreciate them for their efforts to preserve the word of God, but it grew too much. They thought too much of themselves and you'll find later on, if you read through the Gospels, you'll find out why they crucified the Lord. It was out of envy. They didn't want him taking their place. They liked those, remember what Jesus said, they liked the chief seats. They liked to be recognized. They wanted the accolades. They wanted the praise. And, uh, and the Lord was so different from that. Remember, he made himself of no reputation. So here we see now there's a conversation. And it really, it's a subtle trap is what it is. I mean, the Pharisees, do you know where they sat? Sister Kathy, they sat nearly on the front row. <laughs> I'm just messing with you, all right? They, uh, but you know what? And they didn't sit on the front row, Gene, to get a blessing. They, they sat on the front row so they could find some reason to blister him. They weren't there to be blessed. They weren't there to be, learn. They were there to listen and to criticize. That's why they came. And so this is done in a public place and they were going to try to trap him and accuse him. And don't, don't they underestimate him all the time? And they underestimate him. They just didn't know who they were, they were dealing with. They failed in the last discourse when they were talking about show us a sign. You know, Moses brought down that, you know, in the, uh, Moses, we had this manna. And boy, the Lord corrected that right off. He said, hey, that bread from heaven that came, it didn't come from Moses and neither did this bread come from speaking of himself. And so here, they, they, they failed in their last discourse with him, and they're going to fail in this conversation as well. Because notice what happens. Let's look at the story here, all right, as it's recorded. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? You know, this is only part of the story. Now they were trying to quote something or they were going to cite something out of the book of Deuteronomy and also out of the book of Leviticus. And what that says in those, and I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. It says, if you find anybody in that state as they were in that state, you bring them both to trial. You put them both and pass judgment and both are killed. So where's the man in this instance? They were just trying to catch him. They thought that that little, which to me is not very subtle, and, and, uh, but, but oftentimes, you know, uh, uh, the man is sort of excused in these kind of incidents, and they shouldn't be. Amen. Amen. You know, uh, you know we, we, we talk, men talk about, well, you know, they want a wife that's clean and pure. Well, why can't the husband be clean and pure when he gets married? Amen. It's not one, you know, what's good for the goose is also good for the gander. Y'all ought to know what that is. That's an old time saying. Amen. All right. And so, uh, and so they only brought half the story. And so, and his response, though, so because it was done publicly, his response is going to be public and it's also going to be personal. It's going to be personal in what he does. 
You know, when things happen privately, typically you can deal with them privately, particularly if you're a, a person in leadership or you're a supervisor or whatever. Sometimes when things are done, an infraction or whatever, if it's done privately, you can deal with it privately. But when it's done publicly, a lot of times it's called upon, you're going to have to deal with it publicly because other people have heard and other people are going to watch how you handle that problem. And so that's what happened here. They brought this woman in publicly to trap him. And the Lord Jesus is going to answer this publicly and it's going to get personal. Personal. Look what he does. Look at verse 6. This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. They were looking for a reason. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. He just ignored their conversation. And you know, a, a, a lot of ink has been spent on what Jesus wrote. And we don't know. Uh, uh, you know, the Lord was so good at doing some things, just making object lessons. I mean, he set up a drugstore one time in the middle of the road, Gene. He, he, he got some dirt and he spit on it, put it in a man's eyes and washed it out. And the man could see. I mean, uh, you know, he, I mean, he is the great physician. Amen. And he could just do some things. Well, this time he gets down there in the dirt. He just ignores them and he starts writing. And I have no clue. I can't add one thing to all that ink that others have written about what he possibly wrote there. We'll have to find out in eternity, amen, when we get to see him. I've got a few questions that I'd like to have some answers to. But, uh, but and so, they, they notice in verse 7, so when they, they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Maybe he, was, maybe he was writing the rest of the verse uh, that they were referring to there in Deuteronomy. And, uh, you know, you take the man also and put him to death. I don't know. But when he stood up and looked at them, he said, okay, so well then whoever here is without sin, you go ahead and cast the first stone. Well, man, that kind of stunned them. And what does he do? Look at verse 8. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, if you remember back from John chapter 2, it said of the Lord Jesus that no man had to tell him what was in man, for he knew what was in man. No one had to reveal that to him. He knew what was in man. He stooped down and wrote on the ground. And I don't know, if, man, if he didn't maybe write their names. I don't know. And I'm not trying to give light where the Bible does it. I'm just saying that's a possibility. Maybe he, maybe he wrote their names. And you, do you remember when Joseph was there with his brothers? Now I'm jumping back to the Old Testament. Remember Joseph's brothers had come a few times and he makes that meal and he has them sit down. And how does he do this? He has them sit down from the oldest to the youngest. And those brothers are wondering, how did he get the order right? Who is this guy? You remember? That sort of unnerved them. They're like, how does he know that I was after him and before him? I mean, what's going on here? I mean, and you know, and notice what it says. Look at verse 9. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one. Now watch this. Beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. Just like what Joseph did. And what did they do? They left starting with the oldest. I don't know if that was the first name 
that was written and we don't know how many of these men there were it doesn't tell us the number seven five we just know that according to Jewish law every word is established in the mouth of what two or three witnesses but there must have been enough there that there was an eldest and there was the youngest and they each went out and they left and uh, and so in this doing it's going to get it's going to get personal now so we've seen the context and here's this conversation but now let's look at the characteristics of that claim that he makes he said in verse 12 i am the light of the world what what are the characteristics of light did you know that the light that you felt on you this morning when you got out of your when you got out of your vehicle here in the parking lot, the warmth of the sun that you felt. Do you know, uh, you know, we're 90 some 93 million miles from the surface of the sun. Did you know that? That's a good ways, all right? 93 million miles and light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Per second. So the warmth of the sun that you felt on your skin do you realize that just 11 minutes from that feeling, that light left the surface of the sun? And in those 11 minutes, it had time to cool enough. Because in space, there's no real heat. It's ice cold out there. It had time to cool enough to where it didn't burn your skin up when you got here. Amen. 11 minutes ago, the light we're seeing right now, 11 minutes ago, it was on the surface of the sun. I mean, the, 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 the universe, it's a living thing. It's a dynamic thing, just as our planet is. But that's just one characteristic. But the thing that we observe most about, about sunlight and about light is its ability to reveal things. To reveal things. And the light that we have, the light that we see, I mean, I see what you're wearing. Bill's got a blue shirt and Gene's got a plaid shirt on. Ed's wearing plaid. I guess today was plaid day. I, I, I didn't get the memo, guys, all right? And uh, I mean, even Bill's got a little plaid on him. Well, I didn't, Brother Larry didn't get the memo either, all right? And so uh, they're, they're, they're wearing plaid. Now, how do I know that? And Sister Dixie's got some paisley on, what looks like paisley. And uh, she used to be an old hippie. Oh, no, I'm just kidding, all right? And... Uh, her husband's saying yes, those of you who can't see her. And, uh, but but my, my point is, is that the only reason why we're able to see that right now is because of the reflection of the light that's in the room that goes to our eye and our eyes can interpret that, this beautiful organ that God has given us. And you have things called rods and cones, rods that help you see at night, cones, you can remember this way, cones have to do with color. So if your cones are in good shape, then you can detect and see the distinctions of colors. So there is visible light, that which we enjoy today in these rose-colored pews, and then there is the invisible light, like gamma rays and alpha rays and beta rays and things like that. That's beyond the, the comprehension, if you will, of the human eye. We can't see those things. They're only, they're only observable with equipment and technology and so forth, all right? And you say, well, is this a science lesson or is this a spiritual lesson? It's a spiritual lesson because 
because light reveals things. And the Lord Jesus in this passage, just like when he said, I am the bread of life, now he's saying, I'm the light of the world. How is he speaking? He's using a figure of speech to describe something about himself. He's speaking metaphorically. You grammar folks out there, you, uh, you remember those things? Simile is something that uses like or as. And, uh, but a metaphor is, uh, is like using a phrase or whatever as a representation of an object and not the literal object, all right? So when Jesus is gonna say in another place, I am the door, he's not literally a door with hinges and a handle, but he is the entrance way, if you will, into the sheepfold. And there's no other way to get there but by going through that door, amen. And so here, the Lord Jesus is light. I'm the light of the world. And what does he do? What is that light doing? It was revealing some things. And to whom was it revealed? It was revealed to the accusers of that woman. He revealed some things. Notice what it says, look at verse 9. And they which heard it, being convicted. They were convicted. They were being convinced that they were in error. I mean, because what does light do? Light reveals the flaws that things have. It, it can reveal the beauty that you can see. That This is the reason why that, you know, in a home when it's being built, oftentimes the ladies like something with a satin finish or maybe even an eggshell finish and, or uh, something with a semi-gloss. And why do they like that? They like that kind of finish on the walls because those walls then can be easily cleaned, right? That's why they like to do it because it wipes off, put a little spray on there, no problem. But, but sheetrock finishers, they like things and paint that is flat. They like it flat. Why? Because there's no reflection. Therefore, you can't see the flaws that are in the ceiling. Now, y'all don't look up. Keep looking at me, all right? And, uh, and so, so that's what happens. And so light reflects things. It reveals things. And so when there's flat paint on the wall, you can't see maybe where that butt joint got a little thick with the sheetrock mud or, or maybe where the tape is coming through or maybe where somebody hit the wall with their elbow or banged it with a, with a, a hammer and it put a little dimple in there. You can't tell that, but boy, if you put that on with that semi-gloss, good night, you'll see every curve, you'll see everything. Why? Because the light reveals it. The light reflects those things and now becomes visible. And so his illumination, his illumination of their own hearts revealed their guilt. It revealed their guilt. That's what happens when you have an encounter with the Lord Jesus. God reveals our true nature, our true condition. Now, Guilt is something that men and women of the world try to do their very best to avoid. What, what do some people do? And some people drink. Some people take drugs. Some people, they, uh, they, they practice that mall therapy. Amen. They go out and buy stuff that they didn't really want with money that they don't have in the hopes that it's going to make them feel better. Some people sleep a lot. You know why? Because when they're awake, their conscience is bothering them. And there's a sense of guilt or apprehension that they have. That way, if I fall asleep, I don't have to be around that. I don't have to think about those things. I don't have to deal with that. 
And so because and so so don't get guilt and shame confused. Sometimes people use them interchangeably, but they're actually different. Guilt typically has to do with one's behavior. Or maybe they didn't behave like they should have. They they did something they shouldn't have, or they didn't do something that they should have done. Alright? And uh, and so so what do you find? Well, like you know, well, I, you know. I, uh, I didn't stop at the stop sign and I ran into the, I ran into the back of the cop car as it was going by. And you'd have to get out there and say, I'm what? Not just I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm guilty, right? Or, or maybe, uh, maybe you could have prevented something and you didn't act. And you say, man, I sure, I feel bad about that. I could have done something about that. Shame, on the other hand, has to do with feelings or, or negative feelings about a flaw in your own person. Guilt a lot of times has to do with outward things. We feel it on the inside, but a lot of times it has to do with somehow my relationship to an event or something that happened to the world. Shame on the other hand is something about a flaw in me not meeting my own standards. Like there's something wrong with me. And you know, what does the Bible say about us, our hearts? The scripture says in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says that our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Have you ever said, man, I'm ashamed of myself? I feel ashamed. You know, maybe even sometimes you might blush. The Bible calls that shamefacedness. And uh, there are people whose conscience are so seared that they don't feel anything. They're, they're, they don't even blush anymore over anything because it's so deadened to things. But shame is something that a person feels, if you will, that has to be over, over about a flaw. They regret over who they are as a person. Now, both of these things can be fixed. They both of which can be fixed. And the Lord, in his, if you will, in his love for man, he's going to go on to say in John 15, he said, he said uh, uh, of those Pharisees, he said they have no cloak for their sin. When he came, he exposed what they were really all about. He said, if I had not come, they would have still had their cloak. If he, you know, and you think about where you are, if God didn't reveal to you that you were in need of a Savior, that you were less, in other words, that you were not going to get there on your own. If God didn't reveal that with his light and his love, if you will, that we would never know then that we needed a redeemer. We would never know that we had fallen and come short of the glory of God. So it's God's mercy and love that he reveals these things to us about us. You know, this is the reason why he doesn't condemn that woman. Notice what he said. Look at verse 10. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she says what? She said, No, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You know, the Lord didn't come uh, if you will, to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be what? 
saved. It might be saved. That means to be rescued, to be redeemed. And he didn't condemn her. He said, go and sin no more. He put a condition there on that. She called him Lord. That seeming something of a relationship. She recognized who he was. Believe those things. But he doesn't condemn her. And, and isn't it so? Didn't he do the same for us? Those of you that have been saved by the grace of God. He revealed the need of your heart. The re he revealed the need of your soul. For it to be restored. That's why I said these things could be fixed. But they were so accustomed. They had grown accustomed to the dark. You ever do that sometimes? I know when we first... Uh, what happens, you know, it happens wherever you have a lot of reflection in the light. And uh, when, we, when we got here and we were getting things set up and I would come from, uh, from being outdoors and that gravel out there, I would come indoors and I'd come in the camper and be like, good night, I can't see anything, <laughs> you know, uh, because uh, that light makes your pupils, makes them constrict, right? And so they get very small. And, uh, and so they had to get then readjusted. And I look over there, oh, there you are. You know, she's small anyway. Where'd you go, dear? And I couldn't see her, you know. And, uh, and so this is what happens. And so the light here was revealing things about their own heart, about their, the hardness of their heart and who they were from the eldest to the youngest. He opened up their conscience. Notice what it says. Look at verse 9. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own what? By their own conscience. Went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. You know, Proverbs 20 and verse 27 says this about your conscience. It says that the, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Whenever the Bible talks about the belly or bowels, it's talking about man way down deep. That's where God searches. He just doesn't get it. He, he just not surface, man. He gets down there way down deep on the inside. That conscience being awakened and suddenly they were being confronted. They were convicted. Why? Because their conscience had been quickened and made alive. You know, I remember after I got saved, I, I, I didn't think about a lot of things spiritually. I, uh, you know, I'm talking about before I got saved. I wasn't thinking about those things. But after I got saved, you know, uh, uh, after that day, we went home, poured the liquor down. God changed my vocabulary. Uh, I'm just going to say I, I just was a heathen. I needed to be saved. I'm just telling you, I needed it. And, uh, and, but some things changed about my life. And I remember it wasn't long after, uh, after we'd been saved. I looked at Debbie and I said, you know, what have we been thinking about? We've been married seven years at the time. What have we been thinking about? Well, we weren't thinking about anything because our minds weren't right. Our minds had to have that adjustment. Remember what Romans 12 and 2 says, be not conformed to this world. That's what we had been. But after we got saved, it'd be a what? Transformed. That's from the inside out. Conformity is from the outside in. Transformation is kind of like the, uh, kind of like the 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 the, uh, the caterpillar and the beautiful butterfly. That transformation takes place on the inside. And it says, "What? Be not conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind." 
I had to have that. I had to have that renewing. I still have to have it. My mind needs help. Amen. So does yours. And, uh, and so God quickened their consciences, if you will, in that moment. And their guilt and shame became so clear. But what, is, but what does the Lord Jesus say about that? I mean, he said, this is the reason why men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. Why do you suppose bar rooms are dark? Because they don't want other people to see what they're doing. And that's how these men were. The Bible says this of the Lord Jesus. Listen to this passage. He is this brilliant light that he has. The Bible says this. In him was life, John chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. That life was the light of men. Why? He came to reveal some things to us. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness did what? Comprehended it not. It's kind of like when we go outside, man, you go, oh, wow, that is bright. To comprehend it, we just can't take it all in. We just can't absorb it. Can't do that. Verse 9 says, it, it says that that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Listen, beloved, the Holy Spirit is going to do his job. What does he do? He convinces the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. We don't have to beg God to do what he needs to do with our lost loved ones. You're not going to convince God or compel God or manipulate God to doing what he already wanted to do. And that is to save the world. Amen. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, and so he gave that light, but they were so accustomed to it. They just couldn't see the blindness of their own hearts. And so we know that light reveals things, and he revealed some things about them. But you know what also light does? Light repels things. And what does it repel? It repels darkness. Now, don't ask me where it goes. When I come over here early in the morning on Sunday, it was, it was sort of dark in here. And uh, as soon as I turn the light on, as soon as I flip that switch, the darkness is just like Shazam. It's gone, you know? I don't know where it went, but light and dark can't stay in the same room. It's sort of like what concord does, does Christ have with Belial? You can't mix those things. Jesus and the devil uh, are not mixing, you know, like they say in some places, you know, in some false religions, some cults, they want to say that Lucifer and Jesus were brothers. That is a lie out of the pit of hell. That's not who Christ is. And that's not who Lucifer is. They were never brothers. Not ever. And so light repels things. It repels. Look in, look in verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. When I say repels, what did they do? They left. They could have come like the woman. They could have stepped forward and said, Jesus, I'm, I'm guilty. And I'm sorry for what I did. Say to that woman, I'm sorry. Do you think he'd have only healed her? Do you think he'd have only helped her? Absolutely not. He'd have helped every one of those men from the youngest to the eldest. And everybody in that temple, he'd have done that. 
I mean, you remember even that Syrophoenician woman? She's not Jewish. Remember, she's, he's walking along with his men, and she's walking there, and she's crying after him for her daughter. And, uh, and he, said, he said, woman, it's not meat to give bread to, uh, to dogs. I mean, he called her a dog. He wasn't very politically correct, Gene. He just said things like they were. He called her a dog. And, uh, and what did she say? She said, yeah, but master dogs will just eat the crumbs from the master's table. And he just sort of, you know, I'm not trying to put words here in, but man, he said, thy daughter, thy faith have made her whole. They be whole. What did he do? He, you know, he, she, wasn't, she wasn't Jewish. And uh, the Gentiles at the time, they were not really getting in, but he sort of stepped over a dispensational line and saved her and was going to pay for it later at the cross. He did that. Because he said, what am I going to do with that faith? It just had to be dealt with. Just like the centurion said, man, I'm a man given to authority. I just speak and men do this. And Master, all you've got to do is, is uh, speak and I know my servant will be healed. And the Lord, the Bible says, the Lord marveled at that faith. There's only two times the word marvel is used in your Bible. One is when Jesus marveled over the faith of that centurion and then he marveled at the unbelief in Nazareth. And the Bible says he could do no great work there. Those men, they had the opportunity to come. He revealed their need. Conviction was there. Duncan Campbell was a, a Scotsman who was in the Hebrides, the New Hebrides revivals of days gone by. And uh, they got him out there and they were talking with him and, and things were starting to happen. And, and what he said, he said, it's all in that, in that Scottish brogue. And he said, oh, it's better to let them stew in their conviction. Meaning they needed some Holy Ghost conviction. Those people in the New Hebrides, they didn't come down to the altar popping gum and clapping their hands and singing, oh, you know, what a wonderful day. No, that didn't happen. They were, had been stewing in their conviction. And the Lord was dealing with them. Just like he was, just like he had opened Lydia's heart, there by that riverside, God was opening the heart of these men. And how did they respond? They were repelled. It's sort of like preaching the truth. Preaching either draws people or it drives people. You're either drawn to the Lord or you are driven from Him. It really depends upon one's spirit and attitude that they have. And because we're not little automatons, God gave you a will and lets you exercise it, but here's the bottom line He holds you accountable. For the decisions and choices that you make. They made a choice and they chose to leave. What a shame. What a pity. They probably would have been fearing some, some of the other Pharisees had they gotten right. I mean, how did Nicodemus come to him? He came at night. He didn't come in the light that he might be seen by others. No, he came at night. And he said, we, we, we know. So that tells me that they, the whoever the we were, they had been talking about what was going on. And the Lord revealed that. So we know that, law, that we know that light reveals things. We also know that that light repels things. And I'll guarantee you, the biggest little word in hell is going to be the word "if." Those men that were right there in that room, if they died without Him, I don't know if they got in or not later on. I hope they did. 
But if they were in that room, in that place, out in that, out in that courtyard, outside that temple, they're going to be saying, man, if I'd have only come, if I'd have only spoke what was in my heart, if I would have only yielded myself, if, if, if. Light reveals, light repels, but I want you to know something positive about light. Man, light reassures us. It reassures us. Man, if you're having to get gas uh, someplace, would you, if there was over here, here was a, here was a gas station, you could tell the, the little store was closed, but the pumps are still on. They do that in a lot of places. Have you ever seen that when you're traveling? You can tell that the pumps are still on because the dials and all are still lit up. You could still get gas in there, but there are no lights on overhead. So there's a, there's a darkened station where gas is available or diesel's available. And over here is a very well lit one. And where are you going to find the cars? They're going to be under the well-lit place. Why? Because there's something reassuring about that place as opposed to, man, I don't know who's behind the building. I don't know who might jump out at me. Uh, that's not very comforting. You know, when, when you get saved, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, uh, the Lord was already working on me about darkness because when I was a boy, man, I could take the garbage out. I don't know about the rest of you men, but when I would take the garbage out, you'd have thought I was like a 100-yard dash runner. Because I just never seemed, Brother Scott, I just never seemed to get around to it while it was still light. You know, I would always wait the last minute, you know, try to mash it down, do whatever, and then the darkness came. And man, I'd be out there, and we lived out in the country, and so I'd grab that bag, and oh man, I mean, I'd have, they could have clocked me. I might have made a football team back then. I mean, I was so, why? It wasn't because I was such an athlete. It's because I was such a coward. I was afraid of the dark. And I'd come back inside, I'd put the can back, <laughs> Man, I'd be sucking wind. I would be. Why? Now, now y'all are laughing at me, but I guarantee you, I bet you some of y'all were too. Afraid of the dark. Because there's something about being in the light that's reassuring. Reassuring. Does that woman look like she was afraid? Did it seem like in the conversation that now she was fearful? She said, no man condemns me, Lord. I don't think she was cowering. I don't think she was quivering. But I think there was a calm that was there. Why? She believed who he was. That same light that reveals also reassures. It's kind of like the song we sing, Amazing Grace. Twas grace that taught my heart to what? To fear. And then what's the latter part of that? And grace. My fears relieved. What happened? Man, something happened. That same grace that exposed some things, the grace of God now, that grace, my fears relieved. Man, when I could have him as my Savior. Wow. Light reassures. Light makes our course and direction clear. I mean, without light, we're all blind, aren't we? We are. we got to have it. And, uh, and the beauty, I mean, in Psalm 97, in verse 17, it says this, that, that God sowed light and gladness for the righteous. Light and laughter in the life of a believer. God sows that into us. We're not children of the night. We're children of the day. We're not a part of the night. We're a part of the light. And that's a reassurance to us. That's the reason why when we got saved, you know, we were thinking, we, we started to see things as they really were. 
We didn't want to make snap decisions. We still, things are still seldom as they are first reported and often not like they first appear. It still requires something, but we have a little better perception these days. Why? Because he's given us the Holy Scriptures. He's given us the Holy Spirit to be a comfort, to be a guide, to show us, to give me what I need. Proverbs 4 says the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more into the perfect day. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is light and the reproofs of instruction are the way of life. That's that light that's showing me what I need. Hey, there's probably been many a train in days gone by before they didn't have all the have all the electronics that are out there. They still don't always get it right with the gate crossings. But you know what a signalman used to do? He had an old lantern and it had a different colored lens on it. And he'd get out there on the side of that track or whatever and he'd be doing this. And what was he doing? He was trying to show them, man, this way was dangerous. This is not the way to go. I think it was I think it was J. Harold Smith that had an old message on stop, center stop, and he had an old railroad lantern and he would do like this in the preaching. And he'd be saying, Stop, center stop. It was a little bit of light in a whole lot of darkness. You're going the wrong way. And that word is a lamp. And the commandment is life. It's life. John said this in 1 John, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, the truth is not in us. We, we lie and do not the truth. To say that you're right with God when you're not is to live a lie. It's walking, you're walking in darkness, not in light. But John also said, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, what? We have fellowship one with another and the blood of his son Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all our sin. Man, you and I, we can have fellowship with Him. We can have peace with God. We can know Him and the, and the forgiveness of sins from now until, I mean, and to enjoy Him throughout all of eternity, not just in this life, but in the life to come. And God has sent that light, and that light is still shining, and we want our church, Ranchero Drive Baptist Church, it's up here on this little hill, we want it to be a beacon of light. To point people in the right direction and say, man, there's a rocky shoal out there and there's dangers out there. But there's life and hope with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him this morning? I mean, do you know that you know that you know? I, I'm not a doubter preacher. I don't do that. When I read in the New Testament, whenever Paul went back to a place, the Bible says he went back there to confirm the souls. He didn't go back there to confuse anybody. I don't. God is not the author of confusion. But I, I just want you to know. You know, I, we noticed something. We went to town yesterday, and uh, when we were leaving the parking lot of of Walmart, man, we noticed there. You know, there's a little tiny cemetery right there. I don't know who that belongs to. I'd never seen anything like that, Brother Scott, right there. I mean, you got this big Walmart parking lot, the big Walmart, super, whatever it is. And then I think there's a gas station or there's like a little strip mall, then maybe, maybe 40 by 40. It's got a little fence around it. And Debbie said, there's a cemetery right there. You know, even in Kerrville, even in a country place, 
God puts a cemetery there as a testimony to the truth that every one of us are perishing every day a little bit every day the outward man perishing but that inner man when you get saved it's renewed day by day this outward man's going to perish where are you going to be when that day comes where are you going to be do you know him has the light revealed some things and you went to him or did it repel you that's only something that you can answer let's pray father i sure do thank you for my church and i thank you for these patient listeners this morning and i pray father that you'd have your way in the invitation today in jesus precious name amen